Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We believe that the investigation should be brought to a close. We think they're at the end of it. They should render their report Put up, I mean, I guess if we were playing poker, we're not, we say put up or shut up. What do you got? The hell with Bring Mueller. this thing to close. Tom, the hell with what he wants. He did not collude. There is no evidence he colluded. But in the alternative, collusion is not a crime. This nation deserves full-time leadership and no further uh, effort to subvert, uh, to overthrow uh, the presidency of Donald J. Trump. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says there's a smocking gun that proves that Hillary Clinton was the one seeking Russian dirt about him, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You know, there's one right the president never exercises, the right to remain silent. And boy, was he unmirandaized this morning as Paul Manafort went on trial on charges of financial fraud and tax evasion in Northern Virginia. The president was shouting his head off on Twitter that, one, he barely knew a Mr. Manafort, who apparently worked for his campaign in some capacity for a very short time. Two, why didn't the FBI warn him that his goddamn campaign manager was under investigation? And three, Manafort was being treated worse than the legendary mob boss Alphonse Capone, whose name Trump misspelled. Note to the president, if you just call him Al Capone, the way everyone else does, you don't have to worry about whether it's a PH or an F. Trump also called on Attorney General Jeff Sessions to stop the Mueller investigation and started all capsing again about collusion, which is a total hoax and the rigged witch hunt. All in all, it was a pretty hysterical morning in the presidential Fox chamber. Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, recently introduced the idea of arguing in the alternative. There was no collusion, and even if there was, collusion isn't illegal. With Manafort, Trump seems to be arguing in the triangular, if not the completely circular. Manafort didn't do anything terrible, and if he did do something terrible, Trump was the victim of it. Lover boy Peter Strzok, 13, now 17 angry Democrats, etc., etc. It doesn't take a mind reader to discern that Trump is clearly worried as hell about what the Manafort trial could bring to light. He might be sweating about what Manafort could say if he's convicted and wants to negotiate for leniency. So Trump seems to be simultaneously trying to dangle the possibility of a presidential pardon if Manafort keeps his trap shut although that wouldn't help with the state charges Manafort also faces in Virginia, while making clear that if Manafort sings, he'll get the full Michael Cohen, you're dead to me treatment. In any case, if you graph the president's panic level as an indicator of how much trouble he thinks he's in, today's was a big spike right around when the trial started. Coming up on the show, the country where people still idolize Donald Trump as a successful businessman. India. I'll be back with James Crabtree, author of The Billionaire Raj, right after one announcement, which is that I am thrilled to announce 
Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's on September 29th in Austin, Texas. Trumpcast will be there along with the Political Gab Fest, Amicus, El Gab Fest, and The Gist, all the hosts and a whole bunch of special guests. You can mingle with the hosts of all our shows and your fellow fans during the cocktail party, and you can purchase merch at the Slate Day pop-up shop. We're doing this in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. It's at the Capitol Factory, which is a great intimate venue in downtown Austin, and it has limited seating. So get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and more information. Slate Plus members get a 30% discount. And if you want to make a weekend of it, which is what I will certainly be doing, the Texas Tribune is offering $100 off festival badges to Slate Day ticket holders. Texas Tribune is one of the bright spots in American journalism right now, and the festival, which I went to last year, is one of the best political events there is. I really recommend it. We'll have a link on our event page to learn more about the festival. That's slate.com slash live. And now, let's do the tweets. Paul Manafort worked for Ronald Reagan, Bob Dole, and many other highly prominent and respected political leaders. He worked for me for a very short time. Why didn't the government tell me that he was under investigation? These old charges have nothing to do with collusion, a hoax. This is a terrible situation, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions should stop this rigged witch hunt right now before it continues to stain our country any further. Bob Mueller is totally conflicted, and his 17 angry Democrats that are doing his dirty work are a disgrace to the USA. Russian collusion with the Trump campaign, one of the most successful in history, is a total hoax. The Democrats paid for the phony and discredited dossier, which was, along with Comey, McCabe, Strzok, and his lover, the lovely Lisa Page, used to begin the witch hunt. Disgraceful. The fake news media is going crazy. They are totally unhinged. And in many ways, after witnessing firsthand the damage they do to so many innocent and decent people, I enjoy watching. In seven years, when I'm no longer in office, their ratings will dry up and they will be gone. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Joining me in the studio is James Crabtree. He's the author of a new book about India called The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. He used to be an editor of mine at the Financial Times, where he was a journalist stationed in Mumbai. James, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Jake. So I really enjoyed this. You you focus very much on the new wealthy class of, of India, uh, the extraordinary number of billionaires this country has produced in what, the past 20, 25 years? Yeah, probably the last 20 or 15 years. So um, India began liberalizing in the early 1990s. Um, that was the sort of the golden era of globalization. And so India, having shut itself off from the world for 40 years after independence, suddenly re-globalized with a vengeance and developed an economic model in which the the proceeds of new growth uh, went straight up to the very top. And so you had an extraordinary flourishing of the super rich. So in the middle of the 1990s, India had two billionaires, according to the Forbes list. It now has something like 120, which is more than any country other than the US and China. And so a country that was very poor, but sort of relatively equal, has suddenly become less poor, but extraordinarily unequal. And so for the purposes of, of this podcast, one of the things that's interesting is that global business people are now looking at the Indian super rich as they have been looking at the Chinese super rich. And one of the people who whose eye was caught over the last five years by that was Donald Trump and the Trump Organization, uh, for whom India is now their most important international market. James, I was going to let you talk about India for a few minutes without getting into Donald Trump, but thank you for pushing the conversation right there. You, you knew where it was going. So why is Donald Trump has positioned himself as, as pro-India? Um, when someone says they're pro-India, it usually means they're anti-China because these two, these two superpowers are balanced against each other. But why is Trump pro-India? Just because he did a real estate deal there? Well, I think, so there are two things going on. So if you take a step back, there has been this romantic and I think not entirely ridiculous notion in foreign policy circles in Washington for a little while now, uh, which is that in a sense, the US and India should be friends. They're the world's two largest democracies. They're sort of broadly free market economies, certainly compared to China. Uh, they have a liberal heritage. There are some similarities there, and they're both very, very worried about China. And so you put mm. these two things together in a relatively crude sense. And if you're sitting in you know, some think tank in Washington, you think, okay, we should support India because so long as there is not one hegemon in Asia, namely China. So if there are two, then one of them can't dominate, and you know that will be good for us. And India sees this basically the same way. If the Americans can help us, then we won't get dominated by the Chinese. So that's the big geopolitical picture. Trump is a different question. Um, I think we all know that Trump's foreign policy instincts, insofar as he has a worldview, are informed by his real estate dealings. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in his press conference after the Kim-Trump summit in Singapore, which is where I now live. I used to live in, in Mumbai for five years, and I live in Singapore. So I sat watching this, um, this press conference he gave, this freewheeling, rambling, one-hour sort of opus. And he had that line that you will remember that, you know, think about the potential for North Korea. You the know, condos. They've got, they've got some great beaches, you know. That, <laughs> and, and, and it's clear that insofar as his brain kind of thinks about this stuff, he does think about geopolitics through a real estate lens. And we, we now know this. And so even before he decided to, you know, take this presidential run, he and his organization were looking at India for the reasons that my book um, overlays, which is it was a relatively poor country. Uh, that suddenly became a very rich country. And India, more than any other country, I think, embodies 
the change in the business model of the Trump organization that you, almost more than anyone, ha have categorized, um, along with people like Adam Davidson at The New Yorker, that happened at the beginning of the you know, last decade when they stopped being a real estate developer and became a kind of brand salesman yeah. and started licensing. I mean, you've talked about this a lot on this podcast. Uh, this happened in lots of places, almost all of them to some degree dodgy, um, you know, Georgia, Kazakhstan, uh, but India was the, it has been the biggest one. So they, they, they have, they are building five large buildings in India, which is more than any other country. But in order to get to five, you can imagine how many conversations they had to try and have. There were a couple of early abortive deals. And so Trump saw something in India you know, five or 10 years ago, he saw the rise of the new Indian super rich and he decided he was going to go there and see what he could make of it. So these people you call the 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 Baliarchs, nice term, these, these new rich of India, they're customers. I mean, they're people who would like to live in a Trump Tower building and who might have for the first time a million dollars to spend on a condo, which is still sort of an extraordinary thing in India. Yeah, so the oligarchs, that this is a sort of... Oligarchs, yeah, And it's yeah. a neat phrase. So the Russians had oligarchs, the Indians, given Bollywood movies, have oligarchs. So the oligarchs themselves, who are the absolute top of the tree, the, the billionaires, they're probably not buying Trump condos um, because the front cover of my book, for instance, has a picture on it of... India's number one oligarch is a gentleman called Mukesh Ambani. He built uh, a residential skyscraper of his own in downtown Mumbai. It's this is a 70-story house. Yeah, it's uh, 170 meters tall. It's known colloquially as the billion-dollar house. He built it uh, for himself and his wife and his three kids. It stands as this extraordinary icon in downtown Mumbai, the financial capital where I used to live, to the sort of excess of the Indian super-rich. Now, the, so the Trump organization are not targeting those people. To buy a condo in the Trump Tower that's going up in Mumbai at the moment, it's going to cost you somewhere between a million, two million, three million dollars, something like that, which is that's an extraordinary amount of money in a country where to enter the 1%, you need $30,000 a year, and where the average person earns $1,700 a year. Nonetheless, it's not uncommon to have $5 million, $10 million um, uh, sort of condos in Mumbai. And so actually, they're going in at the sort of level of you know, the nouveau riche, but not the extraordinarily rich. Right. And that level actually in India, there's a lot of those people as well. So that's who they're, they're going for. Maybe very rich people outside of the largest cities in India. So people from, you know, from second tier cities, from places in the richest people outside of Mumbai and Delhi, they want to have a place in Mumbai, a Trump property with the Trump brand and the sort of Trump special service, the fact that you get, they call it the white glove service, um, where you have a butler, you have access to a private jet if you want it. All of this sort of quite high touch stuff that apparently the Trump organization really does quite well in its foreign markets, even if the, the buildings are sometimes put up in questionable manner, the, the actual final product is, is still thought to be generally quite good. But so unlike in, say, Georgia or Azerbaijan, where there's a heavy component of money laundering, this is real housing for an emerging class for whom owning a real estate in a building like this will be a mark of social status. I think that's right. I mean, you have to sort of watch yourself legally in these situations. I have never heard the suggestion that in India, primarily these buildings are being put up simply as a fiddle. Uh, however, it is the Indian property market is highly corrupt. And therefore, one of the suppositions, although the Trump organization have, have denied this, is that it's very, very difficult to put up large, basically impossible to put up large condos of this sort in India without some sort of corruption because the system requires it. The system is opaque and complicated and it has lots of bureaucrats who need 
sort of wheels to be greased. And so although the Trump organization themselves don't do this, they sign up with partners and the supposition is the partners are the people who know how to to work the system. The partner that they have in Mumbai is a group called Loda. It's probably the biggest real estate developer in India. Actually, they have quite a good reputation um, as Indian real mm. estate developers go. Um, you know, they're they're pretty classy, but you know, this is a very dirty sector, and so uh, the notion that that you can build a large luxury condo in India without any uh, what you might euphemistically called governance violations. Uh, that's basically theoretically impossible. So Trump likes India because he's succeeded in building buildings there and has done business there. But there's also this identification with um, the nationalism and populism of Nehendra Modi. And there's a sense of political affinity, right? Does Trump, does Trump feel that at all? Or is it just about, is it just about real estate deals? I don't know the man, and I don't claim to understand how his brain operates because he he operates in a very idiosyncratic way. I think he does have a bond with Narendra Modi. So Narendra Modi is India's uh, Hindu nationalist prime minister. He won an overwhelming victory in 2014 because he was seen to be uh, pro-jobs and anti-corruption. On the other hand, Narendra Modi is something of a, of a sort of bete noir for Indian liberals because he has a, a strongly religious nationalist background. And in 2002, he was also involved in, presided over, did not do enough to stop um, an ethnic pogrom in, uh, in a state in India called Gujarat where you know somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 Muslims were killed. And so for a long time, he was banned from travel to the United States. He was effectively banned from travel to a number of other countries. And so he's a very controversial figure. But the sense is that, that Trump and Modi get along. Uh, Modi came here in 2017. Uh, Trump and Modi shared a bear hug. Modi also came here a little earlier than that and played Madison Square Garden. So that is a, a sense of how ex extraordinarily popular Modi is, that he got a crowd of however many you need to fill Madison Square Garden. He then went to London and he played Wembley Stadium and got 60,000 people. So he does something that almost no other politician in the world can do. The interesting thing about Trump is he's very popular in India. So whether or not Trump has an, some sort of intellectual ideological affiliation with Modi on a, on a populist nationalist grounds, which may be true, it is certainly true that Trump is much more popular in India than in other countries where people rightly or wrongly view him as a as a sort of successful aspirational figure. So he's a hero businessman in India. Not, not quite. That would be putting it too far. I mean, I think certainly amongst the Indian elite, they see him as much as a as much of a sort of rogue as everyone else does. Um people view him as a successful aspirational businessman and the Trump brand uh, certainly remains something that many people in India are keen to buy into. And you saw that earlier this year when Donald Jr went to Mumbai and they took out tons of adverts on the front pages of Indian newspapers and, and sort of said that the phrase was, Trump has arrived, have you? That was, that was a picture of Donald mm. Jr. against a kind of fancy condo. He was, you know, hair slicked back, um, arms crossed. And the notion was, you know, you can arrive socially and aspirationally if you invest in a Trump condo. And so that sort of offer that is the Trump brand, um, that may have been tarnished uh, here in America because of the president's politics, but I think it still holds true in India. So how do you think this strategy of, of sort of siding with India against China plays out? Is that going to work for Trump? Will that make sense as a, as a kind of foreign policy staple? Well, actually, I think the danger is almost the opposite, which is that I, I don't think Trump has articulated this sense 
very well because that's not really what he does. But those around him have tried to do that. And so Trump uh, went to Asia for the first time at the end of last year. And in the run-up to that trip, um, Rex Tillerson, the then Secretary of State, gave a speech in Washington, which was by far the most pro-Indian speech that I've ever heard, you know, in recent memory from a senior American policymaker. Um, you know, it was a big sort of wet, slobbery kiss of a speech. Um, and it laid out this notion that your, your listeners will probably be familiar with of the free and open Indo-Pacific, which um, is quite a funny story. This is a Japanese notion. So the Japanese came up with this idea of the free and open Indo-Pacific, which is a sort of anti-Chinese notion, a way of binding together America, um, Australia, Japan, India in one kind of loose confederation. Yeah. And the Americans didn't have any idea what to do with this trip. And so they sort of borrowed this Japanese notion. So they started talking about the free and open Indo-Pacific. And of course, India is at the core of this idea. You know, you can't have the free and open Indo-Pacific as opposed to, you know, just the Pacific without India. So they rolled out this notion. And, and so that is the big idea of American foreign policy in Asia now. And India is at the core of it. The problem is that a whole bunch of stuff that Trump is otherwise doing is going to get in the way of this. So the trade war that he is prosecuting against China is making the Indians very nervous. Um, they don't like this. They don't like the instability that comes with it. They're pondering their own retaliatory tariffs. There's a bunch of other stuff that Trump is doing. Uh, he's planning to restrict technology visas, which are very important to Indian technology companies. Uh, they just canceled relatively recently a special meeting, which was meant to happen between the new Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, and their Indian equivalents at the last minute. That annoyed the Indians. And in general, India is at a stage in its economic development in which it wants calm. In the medium term, it wants the world to change to adapt to India. But at the moment, India, like China, sort of 10 or 15 years ago, just sort of wants things to be steady huh. so that it can continue to grow, get out of poverty, build up its military, you know, do the things that as a, a country that is in time going to be a great power but hasn't quite got there yet. So it doesn't really want the world to be turned upside down. And Trump is turning the world upside down in ways that are very confusing. And so the risk is that, you know, the sort of these countries in Asia that ought to be our friend, Japan and India in particular, suddenly sort of look at this and think, oh, we can't trust this guy. You already see this. Modi started having to make nice to the Chinese again. Uh, Abe in Japan has started to do this. Trump is such a disruptive force and he's so unpredictable that the countries that ought to be America's friends don't really think they can rely on America anymore. It's funny. I think of India as such a chaotic country and a place where, where business and democracy are both so chaotic as, as compared to China with its emphasis on stability and a government that manages everything in a, in a long-range planning sense. And it's funny that India would be reacting against the chaos of Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, India, you're absolutely right. India is thoroughly chaotic in its political and economic system, but it, it, it wants to... There's the famous phrase about about China... You know, that it, it wanted to, um, uh, to sort of effectively kind of hide its light under a bushel. It wanted to kind of grow. It didn't want to change the world, Wanted to, didn't want to shake things up. And the same is really true for India. That even though domestically the country is pretty chaotic, what it wants is stability on the global stage so that it can grow its economy and get out of this stage of sort of domestic difficulties. And therefore, if you come along and start sort of ripping everything up, that's very problematic. So Narendra Modi, he's a kind of swing, potential swing voter 
This is why, I mean, I think all of us, you know, we sort of liberals in the West need to care about India a lot more because everybody else is going in the wrong direction, right? So China is sliding back into a terrifying form of neo-Leninist autocracy. Russia, I mean, you know, is sort of clearly an sort of almost implacable enemy at this point. Many of them, apart from Brazil, many of these other countries, Turkey, India is still, you know, Modi stands up in Davos, at Davos and makes a kind of reasonable fist of talking about free and open globalization and the importance of trade, the fact that India wants to build a kind of export-focused manufacturing economy, the rules-based order, which is the kind of code that we use for sort of being nasty to China. Mm. Um, and so th the problem is that it's difficult for India to sign up to these things if Trump is tearing them all down. And so that's true for everybody else, that when you have an American president who is so who is destroying the system that America itself built, it makes it much more difficult for those countries who basically would quite like that system to cohere, at least for a while. I mean, India in the medium term, as China is now, will want to reshape the world in its own image and its own interest, but it's not quite reached that stage yet. It's not strong enough. So it's sort of quite happy to sort of coast along using the current system. But it's difficult for it to do that if, you know, the country that you would do that with is, is sort of charging around making a mess of everything. James, as a final question unrelated to Trump, I'm really interested in Indian corruption, which you write a lot about in your book, corruption in business, corruption in politics, the corruption throughout the society. How do you think it compares to China and to Russia? Each of these countries is, is very corrupt, but they're corrupt according to different traditions and in different ways. How do the oligarchs compare to the oligarchs and to whatever the Chinese equivalent is? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I mean, they're all uh, they're all different um, in in interesting ways. I mean, China is a much more status system than India, so the the money is controlled um, predominantly within the state apparatus. The oligarchs are not as closely intertwined with political power as they are in Russia. Uh, and they're probably not as powerful either, uh, and then they're more independent. So the real corruption in India happened, um, let's say, 10 years ago. Narendra Modi, for his other faults, has cracked down on the very worst of the corruption which happened under the previous government. This was called the season of scams. And what basically happened was a story about India's re-globalization, that, that as the Indian economy re-globalized and, and suddenly things that were not valuable before like mining licenses or telecoms licenses suddenly became very valuable because you know they were a part of a pie that was now vastly bigger and so there was crony capitalism collusion. so as in as in Russia there was an underpriced privatization right. i mean state assets were given away effectively that, it, or sold much too cheap to right it's it was it was a similar story except it didn't quite happen in the it wasn't quite as egregious as in Russia no. uh, it wasn't as violent um, i mean the the russian system which i know that you know well was is a kind of very pure example of a of an almost African style carve up between the elite. The Indian system, you're talking scams of many many billions of dollars in total, hundreds of billions of dollars during the 2000s. Um, but it wasn't quite as brutal as in as in Russia. And I think since Modi has come along, the the very real sense that that maybe India would go the way of Russia, a deformed democracy, sort of permanently scarred by its oligarch class, that has declined to some degree. And so instead, you have the prospect in India of not absolute larceny, but simply a system that is very corrupt and therefore impinges on your ability to grow. The irony, however, is that all countries have been through, or most countries go through this period. The United States certainly did in the Gilded Age. If you were sitting in America in 1880 or 1890, you very well could have said, 
you know, this country is absolutely irredeemably corrupt. Its urban governance is hopeless. Its political class is venal. Its tycoons are all complete rogues. And then, you know, within 10 or 20 years, things began to look up. The middle class began to assert control over politics. You had some degree of transparency. You, know, you had urban governance, a whole range of different things. So it's not as if countries have um, gone through this process and never come out the other side. Also, the, the secret, which no one wants to tell you, is that actually corruption can be quite useful to development. Um, the Asian, East Asian countries that have developed successfully were all very corrupt. It's just that they use corruption strategically. So if you were South Korea or Malaysia, you used rent-seeking, you gave your tycoon class money under the table so long as they did what you want, which basically was to build competitive exporting industries that would help you develop. The problem that India has is that it doesn't use corruption strategically. And because it's a democracy and now there have been corruption scandals and everyone is hyper aware of corruption, it now probably can't ever use corruption strategically because people are too aware. So it now has to go a sort of difficult path, which is it, it, it had a situation in the 2000s where it had very high growth with very high corruption. Uh, now it, it can't really have high corruption in the same way anymore. So probably what it has to do is grind its way through with slightly lower growth to try and sort of um, get corruption out of the system. And Modi on that front has made some progress, but, but there's still an awful lot left to do. I've been speaking to James Crabtree. His new book is The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. James, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks, Jake. That's it for today's show, which was produced by Jason DeLeon. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.